we can turn back to the passage we read there in Genesis chapter 4. One question that keeps um, coming to our attention, of course, is this question. How should we read the Bible? Or, to put it another way, what's the Bible for? What is it telling us whenever we, we read it? Is there a, another message, apart from the obvious message, if all you had was Genesis chapter 4, what would that do for your spiritual life? And you might think that's a very strange question to ask. But of course, there was a time when people didn't even have Genesis chapter 4. They didn't have anything, really. I mean, the people described in Genesis chapter 4, they didn't have a written Bible. So what did they go on when they uh, worshipped God and so on? So the question we have to ask ourselves, really, is what's the Bible for? And how are we meant to read it? Paul tells us one reason or one purpose in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. I think I mentioned it before, but somebody once said, you should always pay heed to the three sixteens. Don't you ever looked up to see what different books say when they turn to three sixteen? Uh, we know that um, John 3 and 16 is very well known, for God so loved the world. But 1 Timothy 3.16 is quite interesting. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaiming them, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And then we turn to 3.16 in 2 Timothy, we get something else that's also very important. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, <clears throat> for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So there's one answer to Genesis chapter 4, because it says it there, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I suppose we should ask, what qualifies someone to be a man of God? since that is who the scriptures are for. And Paul tells us that in the previous verse, because he says to Timothy um, that from a child, from childhood, 
you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So a man of God is someone who has faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the, how did, what did Jesus say the Bible was about when he was speaking to his disciples? The two on the way to Emmaus, they were feeling um, rather despondent. Life had gone pear-shaped as they thought about it. All their hopes had been dashed. Their dreams had evaporated. Life had become meaningless. What was the point of going on? And we know the story, what happened there. It's recorded in Luke chapter 24. Um, Stranger, with a capital S, draws near and starts to speak to them, asks them why they are sad, a good way to start a conversation, isn't it? Instead of um, beating about the bush about things, just come to the point, why are you sad? And uh, they tell him, and Jesus, whom they don't recognize, he just takes them on a survey of the Old Testament from Moses, and from the prophets, and from the Psalms, and explains to them who he is, and what he was going to do. So, the remedy for their despondency is not actually Jesus coming along beside them. I mean, that's not the remedy for their despondency. Jesus could have come along beside them and spoken about something else, couldn't he? The remedy for their despondency is understanding the Scriptures. It's not so much the presence of Jesus being with them. Although initially we might have thought that, Surely all they needed was for Jesus to be there. But if he had said nothing, they would have remained sad. And he himself, he could have said to them, Look, I'm here. You can stop being sad. But he didn't, did he? It would have been very quick for him to have said that. But he wanted to teach them something. His presence might have been okay for that particular moment, and they might have um, become equally exuberant if they had just recognized him immediately. But what would they do six months later, when Jesus would no longer appear like that. They would need something that would be able to work 
when the physical presence of Jesus was not possible. And therefore, he gave them a lesson of what they should be doing, which was basically to look for Jesus in the Bible. And it's not just to them that Jesus did it, because later on, in that same chapter, we're told that when he met all the disciples together, and no doubt that was a wonderful occasion for them when there he is, alive from the dead. And maybe they didn't do it, I know, we know that, but maybe they could have met their neighbors and they could have said to them the following day, you know what happened to us yesterday? And the neighbors would say, what happened yesterday? And they would have said, we met Jesus. He was killed three days ago, but he's now alive. And what would they have said if their neighbor said, so what? I mean, what would they have said if that was their response? But Jesus, to his disciples on that particular occasion, he did the same as he did to the two in the way to Emmaus. He took them through the Old Testament, pointing out to them things about himself. And no doubt he took them to very clear passages, or so we might think. We imagine he took them to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or something like that. But we aren't told, except that he took them to Moses. That's the first five books. I wonder what he took out of the first five books as he spoke to them. And he also did the prophets. And he also did the Psalms. But anyway... He's giving them the same lesson, isn't he? What are they going to do when he's no longer there? What's going to be in his place? They're going to need something to help them as they face life. They need the Bible. As I'm sure we know, Spurgeon once said on one occasion, quoting a Welsh preacher, he said, this Welshman said, there's a road from every village in England to London. There's not a road in every village to everywhere, but there is a road from every village to London. And the Welsh preacher went on to say, in the same way, there's a road from every verse to Jesus. Do we think the man was right? How many of us thought of Jesus when we read Genesis chapter 4? Another way of looking at it, of course, is to um, realize that we have spiritual antennae or we should have it, and we should 
just be alert. Or reading the Bible. What does this say to me about Jesus? Or what does it not say to me about him? Would he have done this? Is he the answer to what's been stated here? Is there something stated in this verse that eventually will be developed into something that's obvious about him? Little signposts, as it were. And I think the answer to that particular question is that every verse, every verse says something about Jesus. If we're prepared to go down the road and see where it takes us. And it looks to me, and there may be more, but I think in this chapter, there's four roads to Jesus. And these four roads are worship, family, common grace, and prayer. And in one way or another, they point us to Jesus. Because that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is designed to draw attention to Jesus. And we'll see if we can do that as we look at these four examples. Worship. Well, obviously, going by the passage, God had initiated worship. And it's been going on for quite a while. By this time, Cain and Abel are adults. Cain is even married. And he has enough people with him to go and build a city. So we're not here reading something that happened the day after they were cast out of Eden. Life has been going on for a while. There's even some kind of form of justice. Because Cain is very apprehensive that somebody will find him. And when that person finds him, that individual will execute him. So there's what you could call the progression of society uh, taking place. And indeed, if we looked at chapter uh, first, um, uh, sorry, verse 3 of um, chapter 5, it's at least 130 years have passed since the creation at the beginning. So society is on its way developing. They're sinful, of course, but they still worship. And Cain and Abel come together to worship God. Abel's worship is accepted. Cain's is not. Why is Cain's worship not accepted. 
some people look at it and they say, well, it's because his um, sacrifice, sorry, his offering was not a sacrifice. That he offered to God the fruit of the ground. And they say that was wrong. But when we turn to the worship, the practices in Israel, we find that it was entirely appropriate for them to offer uh, have a worship service in which the offering was fruit of the ground. So I don't think the problem is what Cain offered. I mean, Abel's offering may have had the idea that he needed a substitute. We don't know that. But he may have had that. But Cain could have been saying to God, couldn't he? Thank you for giving me the fruit of the ground. The writer to Hebrews tells us what was wrong. What was the difference? The difference between Cain and Abel was that Cain did his offering by faith. So that Abel did his offering by faith. Cain did not offer his one by faith. What does that mean? Well, I think it tells us that in order to worship, we have to have a relationship with God. Abel had his relationship with God. He believed in God. He believed the promise that God had given in the Garden of Eden, that one was going to come who would deliver the human race. So he worshipped by faith. Cain just came up to God as it were, in his time of worship, and gave to him what he thought God would be happy with. Gave him some of the fruit of the ground. But worship tells us, this worship incident here tells us that what we need in order to worship is to have a relationship with God. And how do we have a relationship with God? How, do we, how does that come about? Well, the answer to that question, of course, is a relationship with God through Jesus. There's no other way. And that's how this incident is one road to Jesus. If you read the passage, we have to say to ourselves, why is this offering of Cain not accepted? And why is the offering of Abel accepted? The reason why Abel's one is accepted is because he has faith. Faith in who? The reason why Cain's one is rejected, he has no faith. He has ignored God's promises. He's just coming to God and giving to him in a sort of self-chosen manner what he thinks God will be happy with. And he discovers very quickly that God is not pleased with what he's done. And we know the rest of the story. But this incident is saying to us, and here we are in a place of worship. 
We are worshiping God. How are we to worship him? What do we need to worship him? In order to worship him, we need to know about Jesus. In order to worship him, we have to have faith in Jesus. We have to depend upon Jesus, rely upon Jesus. Worship detached from Jesus is unacceptable, doesn't please God at all. Worship without faith, well, as the writer to Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Abel discovered the way. He believed that the Savior was coming, and he trusted in him. And that's why his worship was accepted. So he's a pointer to Jesus. A very clear road. All we have to do is travel down it. And Abel's sacrifice will take us straight to Calvary, where Jesus made it possible for sinners to have a relationship with God. So that's the first point, the first road, the road of worship. And then there's the second feature in this chapter that seems to stand out quite strongly, and that's the issue of family. Adam's family. Now, uh, Adam has got two kinds of families here. He's got what we could call nuclear family. There's himself and Eve, and at least two of the children are mentioned, uh, Cain and Abel. And later on, uh, Seth is mentioned as the one who is sent or given by God to replace uh, Abel. But Adam has also got a far larger family. After all, he lives for 930 years. I mean, if, if somebody had met Adam, they wouldn't have said to him, how's the children? They wouldn't even have said to him, how's the grandchildren? They wouldn't even have said to him, how's the great-grandchildren? When he was 900 years old, I assume he had some kind of celebration when he was 900. Who was he going to invite to that? Everybody. They're all his family. It's not just a nuclear family. He's got a global family. He's the ancestor of them all, and he's there. And he sees what happens in his family. And as we Look at his family, we can see that, well, they've got all kinds of problems, haven't they? They've got disagreements, they've got crimes, murder, not just with uh, Cain, but also later on with Lamech, and one of Adam's family there in verses 23 and 24 decides to sing a song about his aunt, his behavior, what he's done. And he's killed a man for wounding him, a young man for striking him, 
But who is he speaking about? I mean, he's speaking about another family member. Adam is still alive. There's a family, his family, as he looked around it, and somebody said to him, what's it like, Adam? What do you think he would have said? What would be the story? Well, one thing he'd have said, isn't it? Well, we're not much of a family. That's one thing he would have said. Very sad. But that's where we are. The list of things that have happened in this situation. But where did the idea come from? The idea of having family life. It came from God. And what's God going to do about this chaotic situation that's described here in Genesis chapter 4? Has he got a remedy for this? And of course, the remedy for this is God's got a family. God's going to have a Another family. Who's going to be in it? Who's going to be in this family? Is he going to make some new kind of creatures that would take the place? After all, the two kinds that he's made so far, well, some of them haven't turned out very well. Angels, they're the sons of God in a certain sense, but a good number of them have rebelled against him. The human race, well, they're made in his image, which is another way of describing family life. Because we're told that about Seth. Seth had someone in his image. It's family life. God made Adam and Eve in his image. It's family life. All of them are affected by the sin of their father. Adam and Eve, they sinned against God and they brought the whole situation into this state of things where they might be saying to each other, when Adam heard about the song of Lamech, maybe he might have said to Eve, I wonder what's going to happen next. But anyway, what do we make of this as we read it? Surely the question would arise in our minds. What's God going to do about this? And the extraordinary answer from this question is that God is going to have a family. And who's going to be in the family? Well, people described in this chapter going to be a family of grace. Sinners. Sinners who may have done terrible things. They're going to be in God's family. And of course, we know that, don't we? I mean, that's, that's the reality in which we live. I mean, our, our message to the world is that God is a family. And in this family... Everybody in it has been a sinner. Everybody in it has disobeyed against God. 
That's where he's going to find the family members. People who are guilty of all kinds of sin. Of course, when we think about that, well, we can immediately come up with some kind of difficulties, can't we? And the difficulties might even seem to be on God's side. After all, God is holy. Whatever we want to say about holiness, it's the opposite of sin. God is holy. And even though he loves sinners, how can he solve the issue of them being in his family? He's the holy father. How can they, the children who are unholy, how can they be in his family? And we know the answer to that. God is wise. And he had the, he had the remedy that his own son, Jesus, would have to be involved in order for him to have a family. If there is going to be a real human family, it's going to please God. And that's what's crying out from this chapter. Jesus has to do something. And we know what Jesus did. He went to the cross. And one reason that he went to the cross was so that he would have brothers and sisters. That there would be a real family of God. A family in which the members would be inclined to please him and to bless him. To bless God for what he's done. And of course, God, as we think about this, how is he going to tell people about this wonderful new method of joining his family? How are they getting to know the way of, his, of, of getting inside? And of course, the answer to that question is the gospel. Spread the gospel. And the gospel says that the entrance fee is free. Come into the family of God. That's the gospel message, isn't it? Trust in Jesus, repent of your sins, and join the family of God. So here, the story of the family problems are, that are listed here in this chapter, and there are several of them. They're all pointing to something, aren't they? They're pointing to this. Can God sort this out? And the answer, of course, is yes. God can sort it out. He's going to create a global family. I mean, Adam's global family. Well, what a story would be if they had a family gathering. But God's family. What a story there is when they have a family gathering. The story of forgiveness, restoration, pardon, peace, promises, wonderful future. And of course, the question comes to us, just as it did with the first road to Jesus. The first road to Jesus is, can you worship him? The second road to Jesus is, are you in God's family? And then briefly, the two others. Common grace. Common grace is a 
very countercultural thing. Because we can see from verses 21 and 22 that God showed grace, common grace, to the descendants of Cain. I mean, Cain is banished. And what happens in their place of banishment? Well, they discover how to be farmers. As we're told that there in verse 20, in verse 20, that one of the sons of Jabal, he lives in tents and has livestock. They become farmers, God's common grace. Then there's his brother, and his brother discovers the pleasure of music. And then there's another brother, and he, is, he discovers the, how to work with bronze and iron, all these gifts that God has provided. <laughs> and they're not in the descendants of Abel. It's important for us to notice that. They're actually in the descendants of Cain. Every time we pass a farm, every time we hear some music, every time we hold some kind of metal in our hands, we're meant to think of where it all came from. And it's come from God's common grace, His kindness, His gift. And what question comes to mind when we think of the God who gives gifts? Well, surely the question that comes to mind is this. What is God's best gift? And I don't mean by that to have a competition between farming and music and ironworks what is God's best gift? That he's not just only given amongst the descendants of Cain, but to everyone. And surely that gift is Jesus. Surely when we read about these three features, we're to say to ourselves, is this all that God can give? And the answer, of course, is God can give much more. And Jesus is his best gift. We know that even from John 3 and 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The word gave means he's a gift. So here we have a third pointer to Jesus. We have to follow the road. Take steps along it to see what gifts God is going to give. And the Bible tells us he gives many gifts. But at the height of his gifts is Jesus himself. God the giver. So we thought about how the road of worship from this 
conflict in worship leads us to Jesus who gives us a relationship with the God we worship. This issues and all the family life of these people mentioned in this chapter. It gives us a road to coming to the family of God in which sinners will dwell harmoniously forever in the world to come. And there's this third road, the God who gives and gives good things. Then there's the fourth one that's mentioned in the last verse, verse 20, 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Whatever else it points to, it points to a change in worship, doesn't it? Maybe, I mean, we can see after the incident with Cain and Abel that God started speaking to Cain. A, a conversation followed on from the worship. And maybe that kind of dialogue ceased. And instead of having God speaking to them as it were, they had to call upon the name of the Lord. Prayer. And no doubt they prayed for lots of things. Prayed for temporal things, prayed for spiritual things. But as we walk along the road of prayer, where does it take us? I have no idea what kind of prayers these people made. We don't have any examples of the kinds of prayers they made. But as we walk along this route that's marked by prayer, eventually, of course, we come to prayers that are perfect. These prayers offered up after Seth was born, well, every one of them was an imperfect prayer. And no doubt in their prayers, they had to confess their faults and all that kind of thing. And surely the thought would have come into their mind. Will somebody ever offer a perfect prayer? Will there be somebody who can pray in such a manner that he always gets what he asks? All these people described there in verse 26, none of them got everything they asked. But they does ask the question, will there be someone who gets what he asks? And of course we know the answer to that question. Jesus does. His intercessions are never denied. But not only does he intercede perfectly, and at the moment 
That's what he's doing. But not only does he intercede perfectly, but he instructs us how to pray. And when we get to that place on this road to Jesus, what an extraordinary simple prayer he provides. The Lord's Prayer. One thing we could say about it is these petitions, when they're used, will get an answer. He doesn't say to us, here's an example which you may consult now and again. But indeed, he says to the disciples, when you pray, say. It's actually a command. When you pray, say. Our Father, and so on. No idea what your prayers are like, and it's none of my business. But I think it would be quite vital to follow the Savior's instruction. When you pray, say. So he instructs us how to pray. And he also gives us the invitation to pray. These people began to call upon the name of the Lord. A wonderful privilege. But we can pray using the name of the Lord. So there's four roads. Four roads that seem to lead or seem to be going nowhere. Where's this worship incident going? Seemingly nowhere. But it's a road to Jesus. Where's this family life going? Seemingly nowhere. But it's a road to Jesus. These gifts that God gives, what's the point of them? Where's this road going? It's going to his best gift. This prayer. How long is it going to last for? This road. Well, it's going to lead to the best person who can pray. To the best instructor about prayer. And the one who's going to say to us, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I suspect there's more than four roads in this chapter. I do think the Welshman was right, that Spurgeon quoted. There's a road from every verse to Jesus. And if you start walking down them, 
It's amazing what we'll find. Because they all lead to him. They don't all lead to every doctrine, but they do lead to him. Shall we pray?